Take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We started this chapter last week. We're going to continue it today and moving along into it. We're not going to read the entire section that we read last week. Um, We're going to finish up what we began last week. And so we're going to read just really verses 1 to 7. Um, There is obviously historical narrative that is a part of this, but there's also a deep theological implication that we've got to wrestle with, that we've been wrestling with, in what Jesus says to his disciples in answer to a question in these seven verses. And then really beginning in verse 8, we just get into all the details of the story and how this story unfolds. And um, one of the things that we're going to see, and we're going to really bring this out next week, is there is an extremely huge failure on the part of this man's parents out of fear of the mob, out of fear of the mob. The Jews want Jesus' head, and they are willing to take this man who Jesus healed down And they come and they ask his parents, is this your son? Was he blind? Did Jesus heal him? And the parents cop out, out of fear, and say, well, you ask him, he's of age. Fear of the mob. Fear of the mob can haunt us as parents today. Uh, Peer pressure. We talk about it among kids. It's just as real for us as adults. That's what we'll look at next week. Let's look at the theological situation that unfolds at the beginning of the story. As he passed by, he saw a man that was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, notice the word rabbi. We talked about that last week, what the word means. Who sinned? Here's the question. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now, Jesus is not categorically saying there that these two people were perfect. Uh, You know, the parents and this boy, they've never sinned. It's not a categorical, categorical statement about sinlessness. What it is, it is a direct answer to their question. Jesus is saying that there was no particular sin that caused this man to be born blind. But it was in order that, notice this, it was in order that the works of God might be displayed, might be made manifest, may be brought to light in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And then Jesus makes this statement in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. He made mud with saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went, he washed, and he came back seeing. 
It's interesting how every one of the miracles of Jesus is so individualistic. There is no, like, stock pattern that you see in the Gospels. It's very unique. This man does not even ask Jesus. Remember blind Bartimaeus? He's sitting along the road. When Jesus, he hears that Jesus is coming down the road, the guy is like, uh, you know, he's bouncing off the ground. You know, Jesus, see me. Come heal me. Son of David, I need to be healed. I want to see. It doesn't even record in this situation that this man asked Jesus to heal him. No, the disciples have asked Jesus about the man who was sitting there who was a beggar who was born blind. Jesus answers the question, and then Jesus takes it to the next step, and he just says to the man, go wash this mud that I put in your eyes in the pool of Siloam. Just go wash it. Not really even a promise there. Come back, see. The man had faith. We'll see the implications of the narrative as we go through it, but what I really want to do is build on what we talked about last week. I want us to think about the question that was posed by the disciples. Now, some of this we mentioned last week, so we're going to race right through it. This question is not a why question, it is a who question. Who is responsible? Was it because this man sinned, or was it because his parents did? And so they don't really ask, why is this man blind? They are presuming, their presumption, their premise is that it was a particular sin by one of these individuals that caused their physical suffering. And so we really kind of tried to develop that a little bit last week. We talked about retribution theology. We talked about an Old Testament example, and that was from the story of David when his child dies after his sinful relationship with Bathsheba. We also talked about Job. The dilemma behind their question, remember this? Okay, if the man had sinned and was then born blind, how could a preborn be guilty, how could a child be guilty in the womb of a particular sin that would merit God's judgment? Well, that wouldn't make any sense. And then on the other hand, why would God judge a child for his parents' sin? And obviously, they probably were thinking about in Ezekiel chapter 18, when God laid out the general uh, general principle that the soul that sins, it shall die, that we die for our own sin. And we talked about original sin and the distinctions there, and I don't got time to develop all that today, but we're going to go back and we're going to talk about a sovereign God. Because once we answer the question and we understand that it wasn't because someone sinned that this man was born blind... But Jesus answered, the reason this man was born blind was because God wants to display through that man's blindness something about who God is. God wants to put himself on display through this situation. And so God is using this man's suffering, right? Blindness is to suffer. To get cancer is to suffer. And so God is taking a man's suffering and he is using it as a platform on which to display his grace and his glory. 
We talked about this last week. Johnny Erickson Tata, most of Tata, many of you know who she is. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata was, you know, dove into some shallow water, I think, in Maryland off the coast or something when she was 16 years old, snapped her neck and has been a quadriplegic ever since, has been in a wheelchair. She's 70, in her 70s now. I was listening to something about her this week, and they were talking that because of her struggles, you know, she's in a wheelchair all the time. Now she's got a tremendous fungal infection, and I can understand those things because I've had one for seven years. Oh, my. But she can't expel it. And so they have to hook her up. I can't remember how often in a week. They hook her up to this machine that just jiggles her whole body to try to break loose the fungus in her lungs so somehow she can expel it. No woman has suffered. She said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. When you look at your life and your suffering and your situation, remind yourself of this truth. As we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we think about sovereignty, what are we talking about? Now, if you just thought about the word to be a sovereign, we many times take that word and we will apply it in earthly realms. The word to be sovereign just means to be the highest power and authority. That's why we call a king on earth, a monarch, is called a sovereign. Because he is the highest power and authority in that nation. Now God then is who? He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. So he is truly the sovereign of the cosmos and the universe. He is the highest power and authority. From him flows all decrees and all dictates. Nothing happens except he allows it. He is the highest power and authority. There's another implication of the word, and that is the word complete independence. So when we think about a sovereign nation... It is a nation that is completely independent to govern itself. So a nation is sovereign, but a state is not, is it? A state is part of a sovereign nation. A county is a part of a, of a state, but a county is not a sovereign entity. It is under authority, but the nation itself is independent and answers to none other than itself. So when we think about God, he is the highest power, he has the highest power and authority, and he is completely independent. And what we mean by that, that he is completely independent, is this. You know, God doesn't need anything to sustain himself, to arm himself, to do anything. God is God. He is sovereign. Now, when we think about that, one of the things that we talked about there is, you know, there are some tremendous mysteries in understanding the sovereignty of God. So look, for instance, in Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, God is having a conversation with Moses. It's at Mount Sinai. 
Moses has been saying to God, I can't go. Um, I got too many sheep to take care of. Don't mess up my life. I don't want to go do what you want me to do. All the answers he has, like we get many times when God asks us to do something. Finally, what does Moses say? Well, God, I, I'm just not a public speaker. I don't have an eloquent tongue. I can't lead this thing. What does God say to Moses? Moses said to the Lord, oh, my God, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said, notice this, because this really brings us into this mystery of the sovereignty of God. Who makes man's mouth? Who makes the mute? Or the deaf, the seeing, who makes the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows all our days. God knows all our parts. We are made exactly as he chose. I guarantee there is something about yourself physically you're not too appreciative of right there's something and many times we question God why did you make me that way this way I don't like it whatever that limitation is but God says here is it not I the Lord now notice this as well in Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, see now that I, even I am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. Implications of the sovereignty of God. Now, one of the things we talked about last week was we put on some Bible trifocals. We talked about how the Bible becomes like a set of glasses that helps bring into focus things that are unclear to us. And if you have trifocals, it's because your eyes have trouble adjusting and seeing to bring into focus things that are at a distance, things that are intermediate, and things that are close. And so you need a lens that will correct for every one of those distances. And what I'm saying is there are like three distances in understanding the sovereignty of God. And God's word brings them into focus. And we can look through that lens and we can understand all these different aspects of the sovereignty of God. So, for instance, we can think, we can look at a distance way out there. We look at the big picture and we see that God has a purpose, and God's purpose is his glory and my gain. He is going to put his might, his glory on display through this man's blindness. And that gives us perspective when we look at the big picture. But then in between, things are still blurry. And we see that in between, Satan has a ploy. And in Satan's ploy, in that intermediate between God and me, Satan many times inserts himself in malevolent trials to destroy. And we'll look at that in a minute because we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning on this one. And then we look up close and personal right in my 
personal space at my particular pain, like this man's blindness, and we wonder, how does that glorify God? How does what I'm going, why God couldn't you pick somebody else to struggle with that? Why'd you pick me? And we look in the scripture and we find answers. That does not mean that everything becomes clear to us in every way. Because there are still mysteries. Mysteries that we will not understand until we get to heaven. Now let's think about God's sovereignty and Satan's ploys. And what I want us to think about this morning is that Satan's acts against God are directed in the universe against God's redemptive purposes. Satan has been given delegated authority and he acts within the cosmos and Satan then directs attacks against God's people. And so we see that God is sovereign, but he delegates authority to Satan to act. Now let's think about some of the things in this implication. Look with me at Luke chapter 4 on the screen, verse 5 to 7. This is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan is tempting him. And the devil takes him up and he shows him on a mountain, from a mountain, all the kingdoms of the world. And he does so in a moment of time. Now this is no normal perspective from a mountain. Moses went up on Mount Pisgah and he could look into the promised land. But Jesus goes up on this mountain and he sees all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time with Satan. And Satan says to him, to you, I will give all this authority and I will give you their glory. And then Satan makes a statement because it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. So we see Satan having delegated authority in the cosmos in particular situations to work against God's redemptive purpose. Now look at this. We read this this morning in the scripture reading. And we're only going to look at a part of it, but I want you to notice what it says here. Now no matter how you understand prophecy, whatever your personal view of eschatology is, there's some important truths that are in this that we can all agree on. He says, I saw a beast that is rising up out of the sea. And this beast had ten horns, and it had seven heads. It had ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on all of its heads. And the beast that I had seen, that was like a leopard, uh, excuse me, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet was like a bear, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it, now notice this, to it the dragon. Who's the dragon? The book, rest of the book of Revelation. Satan. To this beast that rises out of the sea, the dragon gives his power, his throne, and great authority. Out of its heads, out of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled, and they followed the beast. And they what? 
They followed the beast, but they worshipped the dragon. They worshipped the dragon. Why? He had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, and they said, who is like the beast, and who can fight against him? So here again, we see Satan acting in the world with delegated authority, having great authority and great power over the affairs of the world, and he is acting against the redemptive purposes of God. Consider on. I was thinking about delegated world rule. In Daniel 4.17, Daniel makes this statement. It is the Most High who rules the kingdom of men. And the Most High gives it to whom he will. So who is the sovereign power over the kingdoms of men? God himself. He is the Most High. But notice what the scripture also says. In John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11, the Bible says Satan is the ruler of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it calls him, this should be a small g, I'm sorry, Satan is the God of this age. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, it calls him the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians 6, 12, it tells us we wrestle against him. And so what we see is Satan is acting under the sovereign rule of Christ in the world with delegated authority to work against the redemptive purposes of God. Now let's think about what happens when Satan levels his guns. There are many things in Scripture where it tells us or it attributes a certain thing to Satan. What happens when he levels his guns at you? By the way, what does the Lord's Prayer say? When we pray, we pray what? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from who? The evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power. We are to pray specifically that we would be delivered from the hand of the evil one. When Satan levels his guns, here are the kind of things that we see him doing in Scripture. One, we see that he has the ability to create natural disasters. The book of Job, there are tornadoes and there are forest fires that are directly attributed to Satan. God says to Satan, you could touch anything that Job has. Cannot take his life. And there are forest fires, there are tornadoes that Satan spawns in order to destroy Job's wealth. We also see Satan having the ability to prompt terrorist raids and a general state of war. So in Job chapter 1 again, Job lays it on the heart, excuse me, Satan lays it on the heart of a group of people called the Sabaeans to come down and to raid the wealth of Job. They come as a warring band and they steal from him his wealth. Terrorist attack. We see the ability in scripture to inflict physical suffering coming directly from Satan. In the book of Acts chapter 10, in the gospel of Luke, Jesus heals a woman who is bent over and she has been stooped in the back and Jesus heals her. But before he does so, he says, I know it's the Sabbath, but it's a good day to deliver this woman 
from the hand of Satan. It's a good day to deliver her from Satan's grip. And he heals her body. And he there attributes that physical suffering to the work of the kingdom of darkness. We see the ability, Satan having the ability to blind men's minds. Tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest they should believe the gospel. Satan can blind men's eyes through idolatrous demonism, and he plants thoughts in people's heads. He did so to Ananias and Sapphira. It says that specifically. We see also in the book of Revelation, Satan has the power to persecute God's people. He has the power to persecute God's people. These are the kinds of things that Satan does. And so he's in that intermediate level between the big picture that God is sovereign and God is in control and nothing happens but that God ordains it. And then Satan acts to destroy. And every evil thing and all suffering in the world truly was instigated by Satan's rebellion. And that's why we live in this world that we do. Now let's think about God's design here. What is God designing to do through this woman's suffering? Or excuse me, this man's suffering. He is seeking to bring to light something about himself. Notice the answer to the question. Let's just look in the text for a minute. Jesus says in verse 3, it is not that this man sinned or his parents. It was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming, no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spits on the ground, he makes a plaster of mud, and he sends him to the pool to wash. All of the suffering of this man's life comes into focus at this moment when God heals him. Physically, the suffering is removed. It's not till the end of the chapter that he actually meets Jesus again and he is converted and he worships Jesus. And he trusts in Jesus for who he is as Lord. But God is trying to bring to light something about himself through the suffering that this man has endured and through the healing that God brings his way. But God does not always bring healing, does he? Many of us in this place have suffered physically for years, and we've prayed, we've asked God to take it, and it continues. So sometimes God brings to light something about himself through alleviating the suffering and healing. And sometimes God brings great glory to himself by giving grace to those who suffer to endure and to continue and to display his grace and his glory in the midst of their suffering. Either way, God is trying to bring to light something about himself. Now, what does he want to manifest? 
that he is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. And that is exactly what this man gets at the end of the chapter. If you look in verse 37, Jesus said to him, to this man, after he finds him again, you have seen the Son of Man, and it is the Son of Man who is speaking to you. And this man then says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. All of the suffering that this man went through comes into focus when this man believes in Jesus and is born again. And this man's suffering was actually the platform on which and through which this man's occasion of salvation. God displays his grace. God displays his glory through the evil designs of Satan to inflict pain and misery in this world. And as Johnny Erickson Tata said, God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your truth. Lord, I, I know that when many people in this place look at situations that they are currently facing, circumstances, suffering, trials, Sometimes it's really hard for us to understand the why. And we wrestle with it. But Lord, help us to trust in your sovereignty. And then, Lord, also help us to trust that Satan cannot act against us in any way, but that you allow it, and that in some way you will display your glory and grace through it. Help us, Father, to see that in the midst of our personal pain and to trust you, as this man did. And so we pray in Jesus' name.